With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. So you want your charity to succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern day fundraising success. And practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect place to learn from experts around the world who, along with our host, provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books cover a broad range of topics from major gift fundraising to use of social media and how to succeed online. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you maneuver through this economic downturn in the charitable sector to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Remember, this is a live call-in show. Become part of the show by adding your voice. Call now at 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome back here to The Nonprofit Coach. We have been on holiday hiatus. So this is our first show of the new year, 2013. And we have got a great show ahead of you um, and a big lineup, too, coming uh, on the show. So remember, go to p2pfundraising.org. That's the letter P, the number two, the letter P, fundraising.org. And you can sign up for our newsletter and make sure that you know who all of our guests are. You'll also be able to read all the articles archives of our past newsletters and uh, later on in the show we'll be uh, sharing with you uh, the lineup that we have coming up through the spring here uh, for the nonprofit coach this has been a big year for us 2012 was the largest audience for the nonprofit coach we are now the most listened to radio series in the nonprofit sector uh, we're very proud of that and the show has tripled its audience in just the past year uh, here on the nonprofit coach those of you who are familiar with us uh, know that you can call in as the announcer said at three four seven three two four thirty eighty and ask questions of our page two expert you can also join us over in the chat room I see a number of folks over in the chat room you can ask questions there or just email me at tedhart at tedhart.com as always here on the nonprofit coach we start with page one news Over on Page One News, you can always follow along at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. A big announcement here, and that is I'm just going to share with you the all-stars here on the Nonprofit Coach, the top ten of all-time episodes here on the Nonprofit Coach. I'm going to start with number ten. Uh, back on November 13, 2012, uh, we introduced International Day of Giving here on the Nonprofit uh, coach, and that was our number 10 show of all time. Number 9 show of all time was on September 11th of 2012. Larry Checo was here sharing his information for nonprofit organizations on nonprofit branding. The number 8 show of all time, we had a duo on the show. Uh, they had won the AFP Youth Award, and they were here to talk about the youth, the future of philanthropy. Uh, that show was so popular, it became the number eight of all time, uh, and that was on November 27th of 2012. 
Clint O'Brien was here on uh, December 11, 2012, uh, sharing information on values um, for your uh, fundraising campaign. That was the number seven most popular of all time. And when I say all time, we're approaching our third anniversary here on the Nonprofit Coach. So these are not just the shows of 2012 that were popular, but going back to the beginning of the Nonprofit Coach. And it turns out that 2012 was such a big year here on the Nonprofit Coach that every one of our top ten shows of all time were in 2012. Uh, Robert Penna was here talking about the Outcomes Toolbox. He became the number six all-time popular show, and that was on November 20th of 2012. The ever-popular Simone Joyeau was here on September 18th with strategic planning for nonprofit organization, and she became the number five most popular show in the history of the nonprofit coach. Uh, Dave Sims was here along with the good folks from Artez Interactive um, talking about the Leukemia Foundation's fundraising in Australia. Uh, he was here on October 16th, and that became the fourth most popular show. Kay Sprinkle Grace, how much can I say about Kay Sprinkle Grace? She does our holiday show every year uh, and the December 18th show that she did uh, 2012 on uh, making your holidays strategic for the new year is the number three most popular show ever here on the Nonprofit Coach. David LaGreca was here uh, talking on October 23rd about governance matters, and he became the number two most popular show here on the Nonprofit Coach. And a little bit of a, a drum roll, please. Uh, we uh, are now announcing the number one show of all time here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, was on June 26, 2012, and that was Penelope Burke. Penelope Burke was here talking about the latest from the Cygnus Donor Research Survey that she does, and she is the number one. Uh, most popular episode of the Nonprofit Coach of all time. So uh, you can find that uh, list uh, that is available in our newsletter at tedhart.com. Just click on newsletter. Um, and uh, next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, uh, each and every month on the Nonprofit Coach, we are very pleased to bring to you the CFRE Minute. And uh, Ava Aldrich is here with us. Ava, welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach. We're just coming back from uh, the holidays, uh, so we're just getting started for the new year. Uh, take us on to the CFRE Minute. Thank you, Ted. Happy to. Well, 2012 was a really good year for CFRE, and uh, I'm pleased to be able to tell you that we had a 17% increase in overall first-time certificates. So I think that that speaks to... Uh, well, congratulations. That's that's incredible Thanks. growth in one year's time. Uh, what uh, What's going on over at uh, CFRE? Why is uh, the certification becoming so much more popular? Well, I think people know that it's important. It provides confidence. It provides, you know, real personal and professional growth opportunities. I think, too, we're doing some different things in terms of doing more outreach, getting out there more, talking with people. Uh, in fact, I'm just uh, heading back from the Association of Lutheran Development Executives Conference in Indianapolis. It was a, a great experience and had a great chance to talk with people about CFRE. So I think some of the things we're doing there with outreach, you know, hopefully are, are really being seen as value by certificates and uh, you know, just gives people a chance to learn more about it and, and get enthusiastic and want to pursue certification. Well, that's, uh, that's terrific. So you don't think it's uh, just because we started the CFRE Minute in 2012? You know, that's probably a lot of it, too. <laughs> well, we're not going to take credit. I'm sure it's the, the wonderful work of, uh, of your team and, of course, the outreach around the world and the growth of certification, the importance that it, that it plays. And the reason that, uh, that we started the CFRE Minute is to draw attention uh, to the dynamic nature of uh, CFRE, CFRE.org, and the certification around the world. Um, before I let you go for um, our CFRE uh, Minute for this month, uh, give us a little bit of an insight into what 2013 is going to look like. I think people are going to be really happy with 2013 for CFRE. Um, first off, we are totally redoing our member portal. So the whole application process will be much more streamlined, much easier. I think I've mentioned before much more green because it will be an online app application as opposed to something that has to get mailed in. We're also going to be expanding the, um, the areas where the CFRE is available. Um, currently, we're available in five countries. Uh, but we are going to be available through global testing networks in mid-2013. And I'll be happy to talk more about that on a future CFRE, or CFRE Minute. 
That sounds like that's going to be a nice big topic. So you'll be back with us uh, next month, as you always hear, uh, are here on the Nonprofit Coach. So uh, welcome back to the new year, and we look forward to the CFRE Minute next month. Thanks, Ted. Thank you. That's Ava Aldrich uh, from uh, CFRE, and you can find uh, her over in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Another good friend is joining us today here on Page One News, and that is to make the big announcement. We have uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach been part of a big conference up in Toronto uh, each year for the last, uh, I think we're going on our fourth year here. Neil Galliford is here um, with uh, Stephen Thomas. Uh, Neil, it's great to have you back here on the show. Oh, hi, Ted. It's great to, great to be here, and uh, congratulations on achieving your uh, uh, listener milestone. Oh, my goodness. It's just amazing uh, the thousands of listeners that we have and the dramatic increase in the listenership over the last year. Uh, and isn't it amazing? This was the first year that uh, uh, every single one of our top ten shows are from the prior year. We've always had a bit of a mix in, in prior uh, top ten lists. Uh, so that's a great way to come back and, and to uh, jump into 2013, as is the announcement that you're going to make today of a big uh, conference that's coming up uh, in Toronto that we're so pleased to be part of. Uh, so take it away, uh, uh, Neil Galford. Yeah, I'm delighted to to let people know on your show about uh, Digital Leap uh, Conference, a digital uh, conference, uh, marketing and fundraising conference for, uh, for not-for-profits. This will be our fourth year. The conference is taking place May 2nd, uh, and it's going to be at the beautiful, amazing venue we were at last year for the first time, the Art Gallery of Ontario. Um, it's going to be a terrific conference. Uh, we've, we really appreciate the uh, support we've gotten over the years from our from our community here. They seem to like the idea of a one-day conference uh, that really tells them all about the latest in, in digital marketing and fundraising. So... Uh, we're very excited. We've got a great speaker uh, lineup, and I know you're coming too, Ted, so uh, that that, uh, that always adds uh, something special as well. Well, I'm, uh, I'm pleased to have the opportunity to be part of the planning for this conference, and, and Neil, this will be our fourth year, is that right? That's correct. It's our fourth year. Yeah, and Who it just thought keeps that growing. we would get here? You know, it's fantastic. I know, I know. Right. Well, we first started just a, a glint in our eye, and uh, and now we've got this uh, a terrifically successful conference. But I think it really meets a need uh, for the nonprofit sector in and in, in making the uh, cutting edge practical. Um, and, I, and that's one of the things I really like about this is you can go to conferences and sort of talk about pie in the sky. And if I had you know, a big budget. But this is this is where cutting edge becomes practical and what you can actually use uh, in your office. And I think that's really what sets this conference apart. So we do have a, a link over in the radio links today, digitalleap.org, uh, you can go to. And at tedhart.com, you'll find uh, that link. And I think, Neil, you'll be uh, you'll be back here on the show between now and the conference on May 2nd uh, to uh, uh, tease us a little bit with some of the uh, very important speakers that you have and some of the other uh, opportunities to learn connected with Digital Leap. Absolutely, and uh, well, I'd encourage people uh, to go to digitalleap.org. Uh, not right now. Keep listening to the show, but uh, when you're done the show, go to digitalleap.org and uh, have a look at uh, the the partial lineup that we've already published. Uh, and uh, take note that there's an early bird uh, discount that uh, I really think people can can take as much as $75 off the full price of the conference if they. Uh, if they get in before the early bird expires. Yeah, and I think that's so. important, to, uh, uh, important to note because the early bird does end on March 20th. And one of the, the really special features of the Digital Leap Conference um, is basically the buddy system that you can register um, and, uh, and bring a friend. Um, and you have even more dramatic savings um, if, you, uh, if you bring a friend uh, to, uh, to the conference. So uh, that early bird is uh, up and running now. And uh, so uh, I think now's a good time uh, for folks to be able to uh, you know, jump in there and make sure that they're uh, going to attend up in Toronto on May 2nd, Digital Leap. So, Neil, we look forward to um, uh, having you back here on the show. And if we're, I have the opportunity, I'll uh, actually uh, be up in Toronto and get a chance to sit down with you and your uh, team tomorrow. So uh, I'll see you tomorrow morning. Great, great, great to talk to you, Ted.
You bet. Thank you. And that's uh, Neil Galford from uh, Stephen Thomas uh, talking about the uh, new Digital Leap Conference 2013 coming up on May 2nd up in Toronto. Uh, and uh, so uh, back here on uh, page one uh, news, you will find all the information about uh, the Digital Leap Conference in our newsletter. I also want to draw attention to the LinkedIn group that we host. And uh, as those of you who have been with us for a while know that uh, this has uh, just become increasingly popular. There are over 2,133 members of the LinkedIn discussion group, and that discussion group goes along with this show and talks about all sorts of fundraising uh, techniques um, uh, focused on people-to-people fundraising. Uh, so you'll find that in our newsletter, the direct link. You can also uh, search over on LinkedIn groups, uh, people-to-people fundraising, or p p2pfundraising.org. Uh, and uh, with that, uh, it's time to wrap up our page one news and get right on over to the star of the show, our page two expert. One of the true pleasures of being the host of the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show is the opportunity uh, to speak to so many uh, experts throughout our philanthropic industry. Uh, and every so often I have an opportunity to uh, speak to someone who is uh, both a top expert but also a good friend. Claudia Looney, CFRE, uh, is with us today as our page two expert. And I, as I'm doing the introduction uh, here, I just have to say this is a dream interview for me. Uh, having someone of the caliber of Claudia Looney um, uh, here on the show is not only a treat for all of my listeners, but a particular uh, treat uh, for me. Uh, Claudia Looney has demonstrated exemplary leadership as a mentor teacher and has proven herself to be one of the top practitioners around the world throughout her distinguished career as a fundraising professional. Uh, Claudia has given generously of her time, treasure, and extraordinary talent to nurture the career development of peers and colleagues and to instill in them value and significance of volunteer service. And we are going to talk about a, a particular initiative uh, that AFP has underway to recognize that important work. Claudia has been a member of the Association of Fundraising Professionals since 1982 and has served unselfishly in countless leadership roles at the chapter level and the national level in AFP and its foundation, including president of the AFP Foundation of Philanthropy and the 2000 and in 2012 received AFP International Fundraiser Year of uh, uh, Fundraiser of the Year Award. Now I'm just going to stop there just for a second because um, I have uh, throughout my career had had the opportunity to have, have Claudia Looney there as a mentor uh, for many many years, and that really started uh, when she um, and I refer to her as my chairman. Uh, and there I have served under many chairmen, but there is only one for me, and that is Claudia Looney. Uh, when she served as the head of the AFP Foundation. I uh, served on that board and then served as treasurer of that board, and she so distinguished herself and set herself apart that, uh, for me, uh, she has always been my chairman. Uh, Claudia has steadfastly championed ethical standards as a cornerstone of effective fundraising and the moral compass of fundraising professionals worldwide, and it is a particular pleasure for me to uh, welcome here on the Nonprofit Coach inaugural episode of 2013 as we go towards our third year uh, here live on the show, Claudia Looney. Welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you, Ted. It's a pleasure to be here. What a nice introduction. You make me smile, and I just uh, remember the wonderful experiences we've had uh, leading uh, with the our colleagues, the AFP, and other fundraising efforts. So thank you for inviting me here today. I feel so special to have you here on the show and to to refer to you as as my chairman and as you know any time we've ever seen each other you know I always uh you know uh, make a fool of myself and run up to you and and, and say my chairman my chairman uh, but but you really did set yourself apart in in the way that you you shepherded us um in service to AFP really did um set you apart and I can't imagine I'm I'm the only one that uh, that feels that way so w- why don't we start our discussion a little bit um by recognizing where you are in your career uh, because you've just recently made a change. I have. Uh, after 47 years of 24-7, I've uh, stepped down as uh, the Senior Vice President for Children's Hospital Los Angeles just last Friday. 
And uh, now I'm on to the next adventure, which I call Graduation. That'll involve a lot of fun and and uh, including a uh, little consulting. Well, that's great. And and anyone who uh, has you as a consultant is, of course, going to be uh, extremely well served. Um, but uh, so this is uh, one of your your first uh, uh, public statements and, and appearances post um, uh, your is. retirement from the the full time twenty four seven. Uh, gig, so we're we're very pleased that you've chosen uh, this show to uh, to share that, which means that we have an opportunity to ask you to reflect on the uh, incredible career that you've already had and the years uh, still left to your career that you will provide in service to others. Um, let's start off with one of your most significant um, accomplishments, and and that is the one that you just finished at uh, Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Um, now you raised a big amount of money. How much did you raise in your last campaign? <laughs> We raised a billion dollars. Now, that's a billion um, with a B, right, for everyone who's falling off their chair right now? That's a billion with a B. Well, we stumbled over that B word quite a bit uh, because we didn't start off with a goal of that magnitude, although it was always a BHAG, as we called it, a big, hairy, audacious goal. And it was a huge leap for us, huge. And uh, it was exciting to be part of that. Well, break sure. that down for us. Over what period of time was that uh, that raise? What's the pledge um, uh, cycle mm-hmm. for that? And uh, how did you come to that goal? Well, we announced it uh, in 2003 that we were going to go for 350 million. We had been raising about 25 million on an annual basis, which is also a huge amount. But we wanted to take it to the next level and really needed to for the institution and had a very well-defined and and embracing and exciting case uh, for why we were raising this kind of money. But over time, our our, uh, needs grew, our vision grew, and uh, the goal kept increasing. So we would hit a milestone and it went from 350 to 500 million to 750 million. And then when we passed that goal, we just kept going because we hadn't finished and filled up the buckets. And we had to raise $250 million to build a new hospital building. And we just weren't there, so we just kept fundraising until we got there. And fortunately, in 2012, in May, we were able to go over the top. It's one billion well, it, thirty-two million. You make it. You make it sound like it's such an easy progression that uh, we just went ahead and kept raising money. Um, but uh, it's not that easy to raise a, a billion dollars. We all know how significant this this accomplishment is. Um, how did you keep the momentum? Because since two thousand three, in a campaign that that's uh, that's gone on for a decade, um, people can get fatigued, including yourself. Well, we really kept focusing on the mission and the goal of the campaign. As soon as we took it above ourselves and above the uh, feeling like we'd already asked everyone that we knew and all the low-hanging fruit had been tapped, um, and then the recession hit. So there were a lot of challenges along the way. And what we just did every time we started to feel like there was going to be a lull, we kept saying, what are we trying to accomplish here? Why do we need to continue? And if we kept that mission and that goal, the campaign case in front of ourselves and our donors and our leadership, we we knew we couldn't stop. So it was a passionate campaign and one that people had fun doing and wanted to be part of it because it was so important and so exciting and so special. Now, you joined um, Children's Hospital Los Angeles in January of 2000. Right. Um, was this just a slam dunk? Did you have a, a big, powerful <laughs> fundraising board that no. uh, that just went out and helped you raise this money, and and you had big vacations over the past uh, couple <laughs> decades? Well, that was uh, the, probably the most pivotal and exciting thing that happened, uh, and it happened early on. Uh, we had two boards. We had a fundraising board, the foundation called the Board of Regents, and we had a hospital board, the Board of Directors. Neither one had been recruited to do a campaign of this magnitude. The Board of Directors had been hired for their expertise. No talk about fundraising, of course. The foundation board, the Board of Regents, didn't have, um, they had an aspirational give or get goal, but they did not have real solid expectations built around their recruitment. So when we looked at this campaign, we said, we can't do this unless we have a board that's totally behind this. We had a a co-chair of the board who was um, very visionary, and he decided, along with the other co-chair, that they should, and one was the chair of the board of directors, one was the chair of the board of regents, 
they blew up both boards and created a new one and said, you may join the new board, but you have to buy into the new fundraising commitments. And if you do, we'd love to have you back. Now, and now how, did you, how did you join. get that kind of commitment? Because because that you know the, there are lots of fundraisers out there who know how important that is to the success of, of fundraising. But the leadership of the organization views you as the fundraiser as being the magician that will magically raise this money. And and oftentimes there is not a, a, a recognition of the connection between those key volunteers working with seasoned. Uh, fundraising professionals that actually get you to success? Well, success is always situational. And at this moment in time, the institution knew they had to raise a significant amount of money or they would not survive. So there was uh, really a major focus on what do we have to do to achieve fundraising success? Because at this moment in time, I think everybody's going to gasp. We have to raise $40 million unrestricted cash every year just to keep this institution, this fabulous children's hospital, alive. That is a huge bubble to burst every year yeah, and a huge goal. So we knew, and then we couldn't even do the program pieces and the research pieces and the recruitment of physicians and leadership that we needed to do. That was over and above the annual operating dollars that were needed. So the the board knew that Children's Hospital was too important an institution not to have the leadership of the city caring and engaging about the goal and the mission. And again, if if we keep the mission and the goal in, as the primary driver, you do it for the right reasons. And then you also have to have the great leadership. And we had great leadership in our board leader co-chairs in our administrative staff our physician staff and we worked real hard at the partnership between the physicians the fundraisers the administrators and the board and we all were in this together we all embraced this goal and that's what made now, it how did you foster all of that because you didn't inherit all that that those sorts of partnerships um, were right. not already there when you started so what did you do to help bring these various groups together well, one of the brilliant things that was really um, promoted and insisted upon by one of the other co-chair was to have a board retreat. And at that board retreat every year, we went away for two or three days, and we actually had physician roundtables, so they got to meet the physicians, and the physicians loved having a board member uh, hear this, hear their presentations. But the, we invited a board member to introduce the physician at the roundtable, and we invited a board member, another board member, to report out what they learned in the roundtable. And so the the board members literally had to learn what was going on within the institution, and they became their close confidant and and partner in fundraising for it as a result. And then to have the the fundraisers sitting at the table with the administration, with the board, uh, with the um, uh, all of the leadership of the institution, we we put together this partnership that was sort of a, a every campaign, every small campaign within the big one had a physician leader, a board or a significant community volunteer, and a fundraising major gift officer. And those three really drove each one of those small campaigns within the big, large one. And it was this great And, and how many roughly small campaigns did you have that, that, we had, that made up? <laughs> we had 23 campaign committees and 225 volunteers involved my goodness, in the campaign. My goodness. Now, how, so how big it was, was a managing staff? nightmare. My yeah, staff, sure. how, how our, my staff was staff? about 90 people. So you had 90 so, uh, yeah. your staff of various support and, and fundraisers. Right. And so what my benchmarking was, you know, because our CEOs and our administrators all deal with ROIs. So I said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to, during this campaign period, we're going to return a million dollars per FTE, and that's all in. That's the receptionist, the person who sends out the acknowledgments and records the gifts and the fundraisers. So if we had 90 people, we had to raise $90 million every year. Okay. All in, and um, they understood that a million dollar return on investment was worth it. And I had to talk with them in those terms so that they could 
see why we needed to add another person. I, you know, I got to the point that they said, well, add some more. We need more money. Well, that doesn't, of course, always work right. either. You have to have the plan. But that worked very well to be talking about return on investments in dollars and that made sense to the administration that was allocating resources for us to do this. And, and how, when you say all in, um, so the the money that that you raised was was a bottom bottom line. It, how do you how did you sort out which so many um, uh, fundraisers that are listening to the show right now have to struggle with you know, annual fund versus major gifts versus capital? Um, how how did you approach all of that so that you weren't uh, literally just cannibalizing yourself? Well, um, a few years ago, in fact, maybe a more than a decade ago, I got tired of whining at budget presentations. You know, I need more money to do this and so, you know, how we all go because we know that if we don't have the resources, we can't raise the money. And I would go in there and feel like almost a beggar trying to understand, trying to understand myself why they didn't see it. So after uh, that period of early career, I went in and said, you know, I can do whatever you want me to do. I can raise a lot of money at a reasonable cost where I can raise, I can be the best demonstrated fundraising expense model and not raise so much money. You tell me what you want and we'll do it. It's your choice. So it became a responsibility of the institution to decide how they wanted to invest. Did they want us to raise a lot of money at a reasonable cost or did they want us to be the lowest cost fundraiser in town? And they had a choice. It wasn't mine. It was theirs. And invariably, when they looked at this, they said, we want to raise the most money. Well, that there's a cost and expense. I just just want to interrupt because I I want to ask you to say that again because I think this was a breakthrough for you that you you got to so long ago that that you're not maybe even recognizing how monumental – this is as a discussion point for every professional that is listening to the show right now, that there are choices, and the, the choice does not mean that you are hat in hand begging to uh, fund your office, but outline the choices the organization can make when they have a professional employed. So go just say that again because I think it's so important. Well, it's about the partnership. If you trust each other. So we would go into the budget presentations. I knew what needed uh, as a a benchmark, but uh, you know, to just to balance the operating budget or to to sustain the operations of the institution. But we would go in and, and I would say to them, I have, this is what I recommend. Now if you want me to be a lower cost of fundraising, I can do that, but the dollars raised will be less. So you choose what you want. You can either do fundraising, you you can either expect us to raise money and be the best demonstrated lowest cost fundraising operation, or we can raise the most amount of money possible at a reasonable cost. But it's your choice. And then it became a partnership that we decided together rather than me coming in and saying and and building my case and and saying you have to support this because it won't happen if you don't. It's just a different dynamic completely. It it really is a very different dynamic when you present this as the kind of partnership that you can have when you hire a professional. So what is it that the organization desires and then send forth your professionals uh, to accomplish that rather than begging to have the resources to do what you feel needs to be done. And and isn't that one of the revelations for our listeners today that you are there as much to advise on the proper process of fundraising uh, as you are to succeed in fundraising, that it's not your role as a fundraiser to determine what the organization should be doing with its fundraising. That it's that partnership and that discussion that gets you to that answer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as soon as we think that we are driving the the fundraising, that we are the only ones that can lead that, then we're in trouble because you need the partnership. You can't be successful without all of the major players being part of the success and feeling the ownership. 
And so they they knew how important fundraising was. And one of the things that we started promoting early on, my uh, the CEO at the time was so brilliant. He said, you know, we are in two businesses. We're in the healthcare business for pediatrics, and we're in the fundraising business. These are two different businesses, and we have to treat them differently. And that was also a revelation for the administrative staff that were trying to pigeonhole the fundraising in the past and uh, suggesting that all the rules for a, a dynamic, huge healthcare institution uh, should apply to the fundraising, which is a totally different business. And so that was very helpful in us talking about what we needed uh, from HR, talking what we needed about our expenditures, talking what we needed about the people to do it. It was just a, we were taken out of the equation when things were happening on the operations side of the hospital because they didn't want to mess with a successful operation of fundraising. And and how how do you make that case? Because I, I'm not sure that, that most of our listeners today would be able to necessarily get that out. Yeah. You know, again, it, it just, I was at the right moment, the right time, but I think we build respect. Um, the institution over time, year after year, and, you know, I was there for 13 years, they knew what they could expect from me. I had earned the right to have some respect, and they appreciated what I, what we had all accomplished together. And so this kind of partnership evolved growing over the years um and certainly the last you know many years was a very good relationship but i think you know you have to earn it and you also have the to have the right kind of partners so what um, what sort and, of advice do you have for our listeners today uh who maybe have not had enough time to build that trust themselves but but even worse maybe coming into a situation where the organization uh, may not have been well served by a predecessor, and so they're, they're, they already sort of have a, a strike against them. Uh, but the need is there, but the trust and the process is not. How do you start bridging that gap? Well, I guess you know it's a long process, but I have two clues in my mind. One is if you start raising money, they'll leave you alone. So if you can find a way to bring in some money, regardless, that's going to give you some space. Because as soon as you show them the dollars, they start backing off. That's true. That's a truism. The second yeah. thing is storytelling works beautifully. And if you can tell the story about where you're going and why you need to do to, what you need to do to get there, it's an easier sell and it's an easier way for people to understand if they hear the story. If they hear stories about others, they hear the story about how you would anticipate going forward. So you have to have in your own mind that that process of what it's going to take, how many years it's going to take, what are the kinds of benchmarks and milestones you're going to look for as triggers that say, yes, we are hitting our mark, and have everybody join in with you. And if you go in there wanting everything overnight, it's not going to happen. So the third thing I or, say is... Or, conversely, if you go in promising everything overnight, yeah, right. um, start, I, start dusting off your resume because it's not going to work right. out. I had a tendency to over-promise, or not over-promise, but promise wildly, and the staff would come back and shake their hands and, and heads and say, well, you know, you put a lot on us. And, and I said, but yeah, but we can do this. We, the, the resources, the, everything's there for us to be able to do this. We can. And uh, so in many ways, uh, I was. I think the positive positioning really helps give everyone confidence. That And you can't waver in front of anyone. Yeah, you, you've got to be the confident one in the room that you know what, that right. what you're doing. Claudia, we're going to and take uh, just a – yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, we're, we're just going to take a really quick uh, break here. Uh, and when we come back, I want to explore one of probably the hardest things you must have done, and I'm going to tell you why I think it was one of the hardest things, because I've been there before, and I know this could not have been easy. Uh, so stay tuned. We're going to be right back with uh, Claudia Looney here on The Nonprofit Coach. <laughs>
back here on the Nonprofit Coach, bringing you live each week the experts in the nonprofit sector. Uh, just to uh, get your uh, calendars out, next week here on the Nonprofit Coach, February 19th, uh, we will have our monthly partnership with greennonprofits.org. Uh, you know that we care very much about the environment here, and so on the Green Show next week, uh, we will have Barbara Wiseman from the Earth Organization helping your organization become more green. Uh, then on February 26th, we have our monthly partnership with the AFP Wiley Radio Show. So here on AFP Wiley Radio Show on February 26th, Michael Rosen will be here with his terrific book, Donor-Centered Planned Giving. Uh, we will then on March 5th um, have Amy Eisenstein here uh, talking about raising more with less. Uh, and then mark your calendar. Take a big red marker out and uh, mark it. Uh, I can hardly believe it, but March 12th. Uh, we will be here with our big third anniversary show here on the Nonprofit Coach. So that's the lineup uh, coming up uh, over the next uh, several weeks here on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, so we're going to head back over to the show with Claudia Looney. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. We're back here live on the Nonprofit Coach with uh, Claudia Looney, one of the foremost experts in fundraising anywhere in the world, sharing her tips and secrets uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach just a few days past stepping down as the leader of fundraising at the Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Now, uh, Claudia, um, I, I, I know that this was not easy to raise a billion dollars, and there's anybody who's going to uh, pretend that it was, but there was one particularly difficult aspect of your work, and I'm just going to tell a little story of, of where I have been and how I know that this had to have been very difficult, and I am just wowed by the success that you've had. Um, as, as some folks may, may know, uh, I now serve as the CEO of the Charities Aid Foundation, of America, and, and we're an international grant-making organization that helps foundations, corporations, and high-net-worth individuals uh, meet IRS protocols in making tax-deductible gifts internationally. Uh, much of my career um, was with hospitals uh, and in the healthcare uh, industry, and there's one particular story when it comes to fundraising from physicians uh, that I would uh, I, I thought I would share today, and that is uh, when I first started um, as the vice president at Lakeside Health System. Uh, a few days after I started, they had a reception in my honor, and I thought, well, how important I must be uh, to have a reception in my honor. And it was thrown by the medical staff. Uh, and as we're getting to, together and some of the leadership is there, they sort of kind of – the leadership sort of circles around me. And the message that they had for me was basically this. Um, we just want to make sure that you understand that you were brought in here not to ask us for money, but to go get money someplace else. Uh, and I remember saying at, at that point, well, uh, uh, it's mostly gentlemen. I said, gentlemen, um, if you don't give and you know us best and you can vouch for the high quality of our work here and you don't find this organization worthy of philanthropic support, why would anyone else? And I kind of remember the reception broke up a little bit after that. So I'm not sure that that necessarily was the most popular way for me to start. And yet you, Claudia Looney, had 100% participation from your uh, your physician staff in this billion-dollar campaign. How on earth did you accomplish that? <laughs> well, we, we started off not asking them for a gift. Uh, we brought them along in the process to the point that they understood everyone was going to be part of this campaign. We started off talking to them about how they could help their patients by doing a variety of things from salons and tours and uh, you name it to um, identifying grateful patients and, and uh, helping us get HIPAA forms signed and so forth. So we talked about the ways they could help fundraising. We also didn't have the expectation that we were going to immediately have everybody jump on board. We were realistic about that. And so what we did was we started with, like any campaign, those that are more likely to give, and we created the best leadership possible. We identified that the surgeons uh, should be asking surgeons and that the medical 
leadership and the research leadership should each have their own group of leaders asking them. We identified the contracting contracting groups and what they should give. So we started in a regular, thoughtful campaign with the medical staff. We had meetings with them and went to them, went to their offices, talked to them about what it was that we were trying to accomplish for their patients uh, and how this was going to benefit everyone as a result. We didn't have everyone on the priority list, as you can imagine. So there was some desire on the part of the physicians uh, to grumble a little bit about, you know, when is it my turn? Um, and what we we told them was that, you know, we had to, um, it didn't mean that their program was less important at the moment. It meant that we were going to have to raise this money so we could continue to support their program because if we didn't get these pieces in place with our dollars raised, we wouldn't be there for them in the future. And um, over time, every single one of them came around. They weren't huge gifts, all of them. They, we, we aimed for 100% participation rather than a dollar goal, and we just kept at it and had the right people asking. And, and what did that say to the community to have well, – because we're all familiar, and, and, and one of the truisms in, in fundraising is we know that 100% of the board – uh, needs to support, and we and we can make the case for why that's the uh, why that's the case. But physicians or staff members or people that are not in a volunteer leadership capacity, how's that case made? Yeah, obviously, that was hugely important. It it lined up another one of those stars so that we could go out and say not only has the board given two hundred and fifty million. But the medical staff has given, 100% of the medical staff has given to this campaign. That's how important it is. So we uh, certainly made people stand up, particularly foundations and corporations that look at those things even more closely. But it also touched the heart of our uh, individual donors who said, you know, if the leadership, if the physicians think this is important, I really need to support them. Right. So it was hugely motivational. And you mentioned that you had... Twenty some odd campaigns going on, and 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 a you know a huge support staff to to be able to support that. How how much of your fundraising was sort of horse trading with the the, the medical staff to get them on board that their pet projects would would be fundraised for? Um, we didn't do much horse trading. Um, we we really needed to stay focused on the priorities. They were. Um, flexible and morphed more than we wanted them to to begin with uh, okay. because over a period of 10 years, you can imagine priorities change and priorities every change, day right. they change. Um, but what we what we did institute was a window of opportunity giving, and we said to them, look it, if you, we can't create a campaign around your area, but if you bring us a willing donor, we will move heaven and earth to try to make that window of opportunity donor give a gift to your area. But we 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 want you have to be the driver of bringing those people to us, or we have to have somebody that contacts us specifically about the about your area. We won't try to to take them away from you. We won't try to put them in the priority if they self-identify to your program. We'll be there for you. We'll give you all the resources you need, the proposals, the the um, VIP tours, the meeting of the leadership. We'll arrange all of that. But you have to bring the donor to us if you want gifts to your program, and we promised we would support them if they did that, and we did. And, and that I, I can imagine that that made a big difference for some of those folks who maybe did not feel that they had that kind of support in the past. Well, it, it helped a little bit, and then over time, you know, almost every area found some donors, and we worked with them, and they saw that it worked. And so success breeds success. And as so, soon as they saw it working, and they saw it working in other places, and then, of course, the doctors talked to each other. So they right. heard. You'll never guess what I raised, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. So a, you know, they, a, they actually did this for me, and we're not a priority. No, right. you know, we're not a priority. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. We we raised that money. Now, now one of the the complex um, issues for for a lot of offices. Now, we we know that there are a lot of fundraising offices out there that are, are you know a team of one. 
and that's a, that's a whole different uh, animal. But you had a much larger uh, team that uh, had a lot of stress, and billion-dollar campaign is stressful for everyone involved. And yet your team remained relatively stable over the period uh, of this uh, very long campaign. Um, how did you manage that on your own team, uh, given the fact that you, you said uh, they often felt that the goals were uh, maybe unattainable or, or really outside of their reach? Right. Well, I, I was very careful about recruitment, first of all, uh, and wanting to make – and we can talk a little bit about that, but I wanted to make certain people really believed in the mission and what we were trying to accomplish. So people that were there, first of all, believed in children's hospitals and believed in the mission. Uh, that made them committed. No one wanted to leave undone work behind. I spent a lot of my time um, connecting, cheering our staff on. I tend to want to know everything that's going on, so to that extent, I'm a micromanager just because I wanted to connect all the dots. But I truly gave people the responsibility and worked with them on strategy and let them fly on their own. I did not, uh, you can't, with a staff that large and with a goal that large, you can't um, micromanage everything. So what we ended up doing is nurturing, encouraging, mentoring, and connecting regularly with the staff. And I did some other things just along the way to make people feel like they were in a happy environment that they liked being in. I brought in roses every Monday morning from my garden, baked goodies, you know, did did things, remembered people's birthdays, bought gifts. I just tried to make it a very personal relationship, which I wanted with them. And I tried to think about how would I want to be treated by my boss. Mm. And I tried to emulate that as often as I could. Well, that's and that's a, a a great story in and of itself. In terms of, you, know, you had pressures. You were working with leadership. You had a job, but trying to put yourself in the shoes of the people who are working for you, in terms of what kind of boss they were looking for, um, and and did part of the mission of the fact that it was children's hospital drive you to be a particular kind of boss, or that was just the kind of boss you were. Um. I think a children's hospital attracts a certain kind of person. But um, everyone starts emulating, you know, the leadership. That happens, you know, you start dressing alike, you start talking alike, you start thinking alike, and you laugh at yourself that you're starting to pick up on what you see around you that you like. And what happened is that, you know, the example, people started responding to the people that were reporting. The leadership was having people reporting to them that responded in the same ways to them that I was responding. So you you saw that as a ripple effect and it worked very effectively. And in any moment, there's going to be something that goes out of sync and you just need to address it and not let it fester. And we tried to do that as well because things aren't perfect. Now, how there's many staff stuff going to happen with? all the time. How many 20, staff did you, 20. 20. Now, did... Those twenty people stay, or did you have to do some housekeeping? What did you set a? New oh, path? I had to do a lot of. <laughs> I, you know, there was a lot of counseling going on, saying, you know, I know you were a wonderful person and had great skill set, and that's why you're here. But you didn't buy into this new goal, and if you decide this isn't the right place for you, because I'm sensing it's not, maybe I could help you find another job. We did right. a lot of that. A so lot I of also, that, yeah. I, I also did a lot of. When it, when people had to leave, because you know we ran a pretty tight ship, we didn't we expected people to work pretty hard, and it wasn't what everyone wanted to buy into. And so when people weren't a good fit, because you can take great people and put them in the wrong situation and they don't yes. succeed, I also spent a lot of time saying, how would I like to leave an organization if it's not working out? And and so I treat people with respect and appreciation and help them move on. And it's just. I, there's not a person that has left Children's Hospital that we helped out the door that isn't still a friend. Oh, and that's and that's wonderful. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, favorite lines in helping people um, work through that process is is uh, to let them know that I sincerely believe that their best work is ahead of them. 
Uh, and, <laughs> That's a nice uh, phrase. <laughs> and uh, and let's 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 help you find that opportunity to uh, to to do that great work. Right. Uh, because as you said, uh, terrific people can just find themselves in the wrong situation, um, and it doesn't mean that they're they're bad or not skilled. It just means that that particular job that they were asked to do is not the one that they were meant to do. Um, so helping them uh, move on. Um, yeah, we've only got a few uh, few moments left. It's always amazing to me how fast this time goes, particularly when I have uh, someone as, as absolutely skilled and fascinating uh, as uh, as you are um, in uh, in what you've accomplished here. Let, let's talk a little bit about benchmarking along the way. As you said, the goal kept changing and and moving. Was it was it just a million dollars per person that you kind of kept your eye on? Uh, in terms of of growth, or were there other benchmarks that that drove you? Well, when we started out on this campaign, we knew that we wanted to raise the watermark for the institution. And so there were some goals in addition to raising a boatload of money. One of them was increasing the donor base. And we went from 60,000 names to over 350,000 names. Um, we actually had 744,000 gifts to the campaign. Obviously, a lot of people gave more than one gift. And that was extremely important to us that we engage the entire community. We wanted to embrace Los Angeles and say, you uh, own this institution, the, the Children's Hospital. You're part of us. We did that. We also had a benchmark of creating new donors, and we added 124,000 new donors. Now, now how did, you, how did you do that? What, what sort of donors were those? Were those <laughs> we, annual fund donors? Was that direct we, mail? How, we operate, how did that happen? We operate from the every stone, no stone unturned method of fundraising. We went after every single dollar wherever we found it. So, Because people give in different ways, and people give in different amounts, and they give uh, generously and give thoughtfully. So we did direct mail, e-philanthropy. We did a lot of um, inviting people to open up their Rolodexes. We worked diligently in expanding our circle of friends because you can't have a campaign of this magnitude without growing that circle of friends. And uh, that was a primary driver. First, it was about relationships. Second, it was about the gift. And, and what about the board itself? You, you had a transformation of the board that really kicked off the campaign, but did, did that board stay together? Yes, it did. Um, we have had very few people uh, leave the board. Um, they were tremendously engaged. Every single board member was on a campaign committee. Uh, they, uh, every single board member uh, gave a gift Every single board member almost gave more than one gift. And, in fact, during the recession, we had to go back and say, we need you to step up again, and they did. They were just phenomenal leaders. Every single person opened up their Rolodex. There were 70 people on the board, and uh, we were close to each 70. We were okay. close to seven, each that's and every seven one zero. Seven zero. Seven do, zero. Do you advise yeah. that organizations have very large boards? I do. I do. It expands your reach, uh, and uh, we are very careful. I did manage. How does an organization make decisions uh, with an organization that large? Well, you have an executive committee that uh, makes the primary decisions. But it is a a concern because that large an entity can't possibly know everything that's going on in the organization. So let me ask you the governance structure of of that large of a board. There's an executive committee that acts mostly as the board in the the group of 70 or more advisors? The the full board meets quarterly, one of which is the board retreat, one of their meetings. Um, And uh, then there's um, very significant committees. The finance committee, for instance, has a full authority of the board, so they can act. Um, and so does you know various other committees like the audit committee and so forth. Okay. But um, it was so the, uh, the whole board of seventy act more as as advisors um, and plug through the committees to the executive board. Yeah, the work is done in the committees. So if you want to be engaged with the life and the decision making, you have to be a very active member in the committees. Okay. And everyone's asked to serve on a hospital committee and a fundraising committee. 
Okay. So they, they have to be engaged, and that's part of the recruitment process. We talk with them about what the expectations are, the giving expectations, the engagement, the ambassador expectations, and so forth. And so they don't agree to come on the board without knowing what they're what they're they're in for. Well, that's that's a, that's a fantastic structure that that sets expectations very early on. We're almost out of time, and I feel like I could sit and just talk to you for hours. And I'm and I'm hoping that at, at an appropriate time you'll come back on the show and share more of your wisdom. Uh, but um, now pleasure. that you have left Children's, um, how can folks reach you now? Uh, I can be reached very easily at Claudia Looney at gmail dot com. Claudia no Looney period at, in between. Mm-hmm. There is a period or no period? No period. Claudia Looney. Okay, so just Claudia Looney altogether at gmail dot com and folks can uh, Claudia Looney, my chairman, thank you for joining <laughs> me here on the nonprofit coach. It's been a particular pleasure to have you here so soon. Uh, after raising a billion dollars at Children's Hospital Los Angeles and just sharing the insight and wisdom that you brought to that organization, and I'm sure that you're going to share with so many uh, that will uh, benefit from your consulting time ahead of you. Ted, thank you for asking me. I truly enjoyed it. Come back soon. I hope to see you soon. Take care. This is the Nonprofit Coach. We'll be back next week here live on the Nonprofit Coach. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.